what God is doing in the world. That means that the people of God in a particular location or community are the means by which God makes his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion, and his very presence known in that community. It's how the people living there would know who God is and what he's like. And when you read through the New Testament, it's churches that launch and plant and establish other churches. This is how God intends for it to be. And this is why we're passionately committed at Chapel Street Church to becoming a family of neighborhood churches. We made the strategic decision not to build one large campus in one location and hope that people drive from farther away, but to reproduce ourselves in communities and in neighborhoods so that the people living there would know the presence of God. And that's why we're so excited to talk about our fourth campus opportunity. God has given us the place in North Aurora and God has preparing a people with Pastor Andrew Griffiths and his team as he's assembling to launch this coming fall. And God has also given us the opportunity to make this happen financially. Recently, a very generous private donor has come and said that they would like to commit to matching 50% of the balance of this project, which is $1.1 million. So if we as a church family can give $550 to $600,000, this person will match that $600,000 and we can launch this campus completely debt-free. What a great opportunity God has given us. What better investment could you think of than to invest in the expansion of God's kingdom by expanding the local church, the way that God makes his presence known in a community? I'm asking everyone who calls Chapel Street Church their home, whether or not you attend the North Aurora campus, would you prayerfully consider what contribution you could make above and beyond your regular giving so that we could launch this campus debt-free this fall? And here's how you can do that. Simply indicate in your check, should you write a check, Neighborhood Church Multiplication. Or if you give online digitally, simply select Neighborhood Church Multiplication as your giving destination. And we'll celebrate together what God does in our midst as we launch the next campus for His glory and for the sake of His gospel. Thank you for being part of the Chapel Street Church family. We do have an amazing opportunity as a church family to uh, get involved with our next campus uh, launch. It's kind of exciting to me, in fact it's very exciting to me, that as we are rebuilding South Street as a campus, as more and more people are comfortable coming back in person, as we see old friends again, or at least people we've known for a good while, uh, sorry to say old in there, uh, but as we, as we rebuild this campus, and we are and we will, uh, we're also rebuilding, uh, preparing to launch a new campus, one we've uh, just envisioned so far, um, with a core team getting ready to go, and we're going to meet and hear about people that we've never even met before, and people are going to find uh, faith in Christ that right now uh, don't even know that a church is going to exist in their neighborhood. So we're very excited about that, so we want to thank you for your ongoing generosity in advance for your uh, future generosity as well. So thank you for being part of Chapel Street uh, Church. I want to begin today with a little quiz. It's been a while since I've done that. Uh, this is a Jeopardy-style quiz. Any Jeopardy fans here? Anybody like the, a few? Well, I want you to try to imagine me as uh, the late Alex Trebek. Uh, I'm going to give you a statement, and then the answer you give is in the form of a question, right? You know how that works. For example, if I say, he is the pastor at our Mills Creek campus, you would say, who is Sterling Moore? And there he is. What a great guy. If I would say he will be the pastor of our new North Aurora campus, you would say, who is? Andrew, Andrew Griffiths. 
There he is again. Found those on our website, by the way. I didn't happen to have those right on my phone. But you know how it works now. Um, so the category today is famous kings from history. Okay, famous kings for history. Question one. Uh, he was king of Great Britain during the American Revolution. Who was? King George the Third. There you go. Excellent. Uh, the Declaration of Independence actually was uh, addressed to him personally. Secondly, uh, he ruled as king of France and was married to Marie Antoinette, who was one of the Louis, right? King Louis the 16th, I think. I think. I could be wrong about that. Uh, he was executed during the French Revolution in 1793, so things didn't go so well for him. Number three, although an accomplished king in his own right, he is best known as the father of Alexander the Great. <laughs> Crickets. Who was... Philip, of Mas Philip II of Macedonia. I had to look that one up. I didn't know that one. Fourth, this king's heroic leadership in the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C. made him a legend. Who was? Oh, come on. King Leonidas of the Spartans, right? Michigan State's named after this guy, the Spartans. Okay, finally, uh, created in 1933, this oversized primate is best known for climbing the Empire State Building. Who is King Kong? There you go. Now, today we talk about another king, obviously. It's Palm Sunday. We celebrate the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. We're talking about a much, much different kind of king. But for the last three weeks, we've been in a series from 1 Peter called Living Hope. And I don't want to let a week go by without reminding you uh, what our memory verse is uh, for that series, because we're going to pick it up again in a couple of weeks. So, if you can do it without looking at the screens, our memory verse for that series uh, in 1 Peter 1, verse 3 is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, uh, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to keep reminding you of that. If there's any verse you recite to yourself every morning when you wake up and every evening when you go to bed, it's that one. We are born again into a living hope. But for today and next week, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we're taking a two-week break from 1 Peter to do a mini-series called The Unexpected King. The Unexpected King. And the story we look at today takes place less than a week before the crucifixion at the beginning of the week of the Passover celebration. Jesus has been in Jericho. Yep, that same Jericho where all the walls came tumbling down uh, centuries before. And Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So you see... Um, on this map here, you see the Dead Sea there in blue. Jerusalem just to the left of that, and Jericho just up to the, to the northeast at the top end of the, sea, of the Dead Sea. Now, uh, a couple of things happen in Jericho that prepare us for, what, uh, for the story we read today. Um, Luke tells us first in chapter 18 that Jesus uh, comes into uh, a, a conversation with a man who was blind. So let me read this story to you because there are certain things I need to point out as we get to the story we're looking at today. So in Luke 18 we read, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David... Have mercy on me. Now, this is significant because the, uh, the Messiah was believed to come from the line of King David. And so son of David was a title given to the Messiah. Uh, and this is the first time anyone in the New Testament has applied that title directly to Jesus of Nazareth. All right? So the blind man is saying he believes that this man Jesus is 
the Messiah sent from God. Verse 39, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Now, why would they rebuke him and tell him to be quiet? Because he's using a title that belongs only to the Messiah. And that's a frightening thing to say. Because if he's wrong, it's blasphemy. Blasphemy. So they said, shh, don't be saying that here. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I always think that's a curious question. Now, Jesus isn't asking a dumb question here. He knows what the man's need is. He can see that he's blind. He simply invites the man to confess and to express what his greatest need would be. Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. And then Luke tells us um, that he has a, another encounter as he enters into Jericho. And this is with a man we all know quite well, Zacchaeus the tax collector. You remember the story? Zacchaeus is curious. He hears Jesus is passing through, climbs up in a tree to get a good view of him. Jesus sees him and immediately invites himself over for dinner at Zacchaeus' home. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 19. Luke writes, all the people saw this and began to mutter, to grumble. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You just didn't do that in those days. A holy man just didn't walk into the, the home of a tax collector. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and save the lost. So, before we even get to the story we look at today, there's a physical healing of a blind man, a man who called out to him as the son of David, and then there's a spiritual healing of a sinful tax collector, and Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And all that sets the stage for a dramatic story that we read today. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. I want to point out that little word up. It seems like a small thing. But uh, it's another indication about how accurate the New Testament writers were when it came to history and geography because Jericho was one of the lowest places on earth, about 850 feet below sea level. And so the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a 15-mile walk uphill all the way through a region that's called the Wadi Kelt. Uh, I actually had a chance to walk on part of this road a few years ago when we visited the Holy Land. Uh, Jesus made this uh, traveled this road many times in his lifetime. In fact, it's a setting for one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 29, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, these are two small villages. They're kind of like uh, little suburbs of Jerusalem, about one to two miles outside the city. Uh, Bethany was the village, by the way, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived and was the site of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead only a few days or weeks earlier. At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, this story appears in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's traditionally called uh, the triumphal entry. And it indeed is triumphal, but I want you to see there's also um, a note of tragedy in all the triumph. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at an unexpected arrival, an unexpected worship, and unexpected tears. First, an unexpected arrival. A couple of Saturdays ago, I performed a wedding right here in this uh, sanctuary, one of the few weddings we've done in person in this room uh, over the past year. And uh, the wedding began when I took my place, kind of up here, and all the groomers would walk in, and they all lined up here, Then all the bridesmaids walked down, and they took up their places up here. And, whenever, and then the ring bearer came in, and the, maid, and the little flower girl spreading the flowers. And then everything came to a stop. The music changed, and then the back door swung open. And what happened next? Yeah, everybody stood up because the bride was getting ready to enter the room. And at a wedding in our culture, the bride is the most important person in the room. And everybody stands up and watched as she walked down the aisle. We all recognize certain cultural signals or protocols that tell us when we're in the presence of someone significant or important. When the President of the United States enters a room, everyone stands. Often there's a military band that plays Hail to the Chief. When movie stars arrive for the Oscars, uh, they arrive in fancy stretch limousines and they walk on a red carpet. That, by the way, uh, is Clint Eastwood, one of my favorites. Anybody know how old Clint is today? 90 years old. Is that amazing or what? Makes me feel old, right? All these are cultural and historical cues to us. They tell us the status or the perceived importance of a person. And there are several cultural clues in this story uh, that we can easily miss because we weren't raised in that culture. And they would have been obvious to the people living in that time. And the first one I want to point out is the symbol of a donkey. This little fellow here. Luke 19, let me read the beginning of the story again. Uh, after Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he pro approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, there's kind of an obvious question here that occurs to me. Uh, why would Jesus need a donkey to ride into Jerusalem? It's only a one to two mile walk. He just walked 15 miles uphill. Scholars estimate that Jesus walked about 3,000 miles in his, just his three years of public ministry. It's how he got from one place to the other. So now he needs help going the last mile or two? No. Uh, he's chosen it very intentionally, and we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead and went and found it just as he told them. And when they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So he want, not only does he want a donkey, he wants a specific kind of donkey. He wants a colt, a young donkey, and he's doing that in order to fulfill 
the prophecy of Zechariah, the ancient prophet Zechariah, who in chapter 9-9 of that book says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is uh, using the obvious and well-known cultural and prophetic symbol of a donkey, a young donkey, to send a message. And the message he is sending is, I am the fulfillment of the ancient messianic prophecy of Zechariah. I am the king that you have been waiting for. So a king riding a donkey into the city was a signal to the people of Jerusalem, uh, and one that they recognized. It was a kind of coronation scene, if you will. Now, just a couple of things about the donkey. Not only uh, is it fulfillment of ancient prophecy, uh, this is a cult, it said. We are told specifically that it's a young donkey that no one has ever ridden before. And I'm pretty sure no one here, maybe, maybe, a, maybe one or two of you have uh, had the experience of trying to ride an unbroken animal, or maybe trying to ride a donkey if you grew up on a farm or something like that. But my guess is that uh, what should happen when a grown man gets onto an unbroken colt, an unbroken animal, and rides into a chaotic and cheering, screaming crowd of people, what should happen is that animal should resist. That animal should buck and should, should, should halt and should resist him uh, and should be frightened. But that's not what happens in the story. We aren't told that. Uh, Jesus doesn't need to break this animal uh, because the, Luke is telling us in a very subtle way that even an animal understands who he is. Even a beast understands who his master is. Even a donkey obeys him and is at peace. The donkey is also a symbol of humility because in those days, a great man, you know, a king or a warrior or a general, when he came into a city, if he was coming in to conquer that city, if he was coming in triumph, he would ride a great war horse, a white stallion decked out with armor to just indicate something of his stature. He wouldn't ride a young donkey. In fact, we see this in the book of Revelation later uh, when Jesus is depicted by the Apostle John as coming in the clouds of heaven riding a white horse on which is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But this time he's coming in peace. He's coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as a different kind of king, so he's riding on a donkey. Next we see that Jesus is claiming a certain kind of authority. He says, if someone asks you, why are you untying the donkey, just say the Lord needs it. I was thinking about this. It's like me sending um, uh, one of my sons to a local car dealer and just tell him, just, just pick out a car and just, I, I need one, so just, just bring any car back to me. So they go to the car lot and they get in the car and they start it up and they start to drive it off the lot and the guy says, whoa, 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 where are you going with that car? And they go, the dad needs it. And everybody's okay with this, right? A couple things here. Uh, the title Lord that Jesus here applies to himself is a title of divine authority. Now, it's not likely Jesus is just pulling rank on some poor uh, donkey owner here. Uh, by the time uh, th we get to this part in the story of Jesus, uh, people in this region know him quite well. He has many friends and followers in the area, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and others in Bethany. Uh, they've seen him do wonderful things. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So it's likely there were plenty of people, plenty of his followers, who had said things to him or to his disciples like, hey, if you ever need anything, if, you, if the master, if he needs anything, just say the word. I think this owner of the donkey saw it as a great honor 
to serve Jesus in this way. It made me ask a question of myself. How willing am I, typically, to offer Jesus something I tend to think of as mine? Right? You know the question I'm asking. My car. If you needed my car, would I be like, sure, but uh, when are you going to get it back? Or can you fill up the tank when you come back, you know? Uh, Can you sign right here? Or my house? Or my money? Do I consider it an honor? Or a burden? I think it's a good question. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Unmistakable status. Son of David. Fulfilling the prophecy. The long-awaited king. Unapologetic authority. Tell him the Lord needs it. An unimaginable humility. Riding on a young donkey. And then there's one more symbol. Verse 35. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Other gospel writers include waving of palm branches. Now, what's with throwing your, your clothes on the road? Well, in the ancient world, this was a sign of great honor, the sign of respect. It was sort of the ancient equivalent of a red carpet treatment. In other words, the people got it. They recognized the symbols. They recognized that this was the arrival of a king, their long-awaited Messiah and king. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, or at least so, so they thought. And that leads us to the second part of the story, which I'm calling unexpected worship. Unexpected worship. Uh, how many one celebrity, well, how many one name celebrities can you uh, mention, can you think of? You know, people who are so famous, they only need one name. Let, let's tr- I'll give you a little quiz. Uh, how about this lady? Oprah. You don't even need to know the rest, right? How about this guy? LeBron, or how about Tiger? No, not this Tiger. That Tiger. Tiger Woods. How about Jake from State Farm? Right? He might be the most well-known of all of them. But if one of these one-name celebrities, and there are a bunch of others I could have mentioned, uh, came walking into South Street campus this morning to attend worship on Palm Sunday, just one of them came in, the, the whole room would sort of tip in that direction, right? We'd all be aware and it would actually be hard for you to focus on what I was doing up here if you knew that, you know, Oprah was sitting back in the back row, right? It would be hard for me to concentrate. I wouldn't even be listening to me right? because I'd be focused on what, because we're, we're a celebrity-driven culture, right? We pay attention. Celebrities sell us everything from dish soap to cars. We are a celebrity-driven culture. And that's a little bit of what's going on here. Look at verse 32. When he, Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down, The whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. That's key to notice. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So Jesus allows a blind man to call him son of David. Uh, Jesus rides a donkey, clearly indicating that he is the fulfillment of the ancient messianic prophecy. Jesus refers to himself as Lord. But right here, this right here is the tipping point of the story of Jesus. A couple things going on here. Notice the crowd is praising Jesus. But if you look closely, they're praising him kind of for the wrong reasons. Luke says the whole crowd began to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. 
Luke 17, there was the cleansing of ten lepers. Luke 18, the healing of the blind man. They recognized the donkey as the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And they're praising Jesus as the promised king, the Messiah. And they're even singing a portion of Psalm 118, which says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Other gospel writers include the word Hosanna that we sang earlier today. Now, what they are celebrating is the miracles they had seen. And I can understand that. What they are thinking is Jesus will be the second coming of a king like the great King David who's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. Uh, They shout, give us success. Throw out the hated Romans. Restore Israel to prosperity and to power. Give us more miracles, Lord. Second, notice where the crowds are thrilled to be in the presence of one they think of as a celebrity. The Pharisees are not happy at all. In fact, they are outraged. Luke says some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Well, they recognize also what Jesus has just done. They recognize all the symbols. They see very clearly what Jesus is doing. And he's most definitely not their idea of a king. Not their idea of what the Messiah would be. He hangs out with the wrong kind of people. Zacchaeus, for example. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. He violates their religious laws by healing the sick on a Sabbath day. He's confronted their own hypocrisy. Uh, In Matthew chapter 23, there's a whole list of these confrontations. But Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So they weren't big fans of Jesus by this time. And on top of all this, in their eyes, Jesus is committing the ultimate blasphemy by allowing people to worship him. And so they confront him. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them worship you. It's wrong. Third thing going on here is Jesus not only accepts their worship, accepts worship that's due only to God, but he doubles down. He says, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. So Jesus is saying not only does he deserve worship, but that all of creation, right down to inanimate rocks and stones, recognize his glory and authority. I had an interesting thought this, this week. Uh, Jesus is clearly speaking metaphorically, at least most scholars believe he is here. But I started thinking, what if he's speaking literally? I mean, after all, Paul in Colossians says, all things were created by him and for him. Psalm, one, ni- Psalm 19 says, uh, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day and night they pour forth speech. So what if a day came when not a single human being offered praise and worship to Jesus, maybe the rocks themselves would cry out. Interesting to think about. So all this leads us to the third part of the story, which I'm calling unexpected tears. Unexpected tears. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Let me pause here. There were at least two words uh, that Luke, the gospel writer here, could have used for weeping. Uh, one meant to weep quietly, uh, but that's not the word he uses. The word he uses here is a word that means to weep aloud. 
uh, uncontainable, audible grief. In other words, to wail. It's the same word used to, des- to describe Peter's weeping bitterly after denying Christ three times on the night before he died. It's the same word used to describe the weeping of the mothers for their children at the slaughter of the innocents by Herod after Jesus' birth. This is an active, visible, loud wailing. It's grief in purest form. Now, if we're paying attention, this is quite a jarring scene. There's a crowd throwing their coats on the ground, waving palm branches, singing the psalms, uh, welcoming their king into Jerusalem. It's a parade. And Jesus is on the donkey weeping, wailing in grief. Why? Verse 42, and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace but is now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, for my money, that last phrase is one of the saddest sentences in the entire Bible. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. you. You can probably think of a time in your life when you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not yet recognized the time of God's coming to you. It's a powerful line. Jesus is grieving, weeping, because he knows that Jerusalem will soon be destroyed some 40 years later by the Romans when they, when they descended on Jerusalem and tore down the temple in 70 A.D. He's weeping because he knows the crowds do not know clearly who he is. He knows they're celebrating his miracles. He knows they want a king, but he knows they want a king who will defeat all their enemies, who will liberate them from the hated Romans. They want a king who will provide them with good things, who will give them success. Makes me ask another question. What is it that I want most from Jesus. What is it that I expect from him? Have I recognized the time of God's coming? Jesus is weeping because I do not understand fully yet what he's come to do. He's weeping because he knows the plan has already been set in motion to arrest him and to set in motion all the events that will lead to his ultimate death on a Roman cross. Jesus weeps. Years ago, now, um, many years ago now, a man came to see me here in my office at South Street. Uh, he had a 20-something-year-old son who was suffering from a chronic illness. Uh, and as he walked into my office, I'll never forget the, the, the picture. He walked in carrying his Bible in his hand. When he got to my desk, he just dropped it on my desk and said, Pastor, I'm done. I, what do you mean? And he went on to tell me that because his son had suffered... Because he had prayed and prayed and God seemingly had not heard his prayers, had not helped his son, uh, he just said he was done. He said, I'm done praying, I'm done hoping, I'm done believing, I'm done with God. Now my heart broke for him because as I was a young father at that time, I understood his pain, his fear, his frustration, and all I could do was try to to, uh, acknowledge all that. Uh, but also to remind him that Jesus, that Jesus didn't come to promise us miracles. He didn't come to promise us health and prosperity. 
He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to offer us salvation. He came to offer us the healing of our souls for all eternity. So we had a long conversation, and to make a long story short, he didn't leave his Bible on my desk. He took it with him when he left. I don't remember ever seeing him again personally, but sometime later I did hear that his son had recovered and had come to faith in Jesus. So the question today is, who do we think Jesus is? What do we think of him? What kind of king do we look for, do we want? One who gives us success, one who makes us happy, one who gives us health, one who agrees with our politics, one who grants us all our wishes, one who obeys our wishes and our whims, or do we want the one who has all authority? Do we want the one who's honored and worshipped by all of creation, the one who took all of our sin onto himself, the one who shed his blood for our forgiveness, the one by whom we are born again into a living hope, as Peter says, the one who came to us and for us, the one who is our suffering and dying and risen king. Do we want one who serves us, or do we want one that we serve gladly and with all our hearts? We'll go back to that phrase how we recognized the day of God's coming to us. That's another way of saying, have we recognized our king? Have you recognized your king today? On this day, Palm Sunday, I just want to emphasize that we understand who it is that we celebrate, that we understand who it is that we honor today, that we understand what he came to do, and we adjust our expectations to who he is. May we be among those who recognize today the time of God's coming to us. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this familiar story that many of us have known since Sunday school days. But may we hear it today in in a fresh way. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we want your miracles more than we want you. That may be true for all of us. Sometimes we think of you more as one who serves our wishes rather than one who is sovereign, ruler of over all things. So today, may we recognize you for who you are and may we worship and celebrate you as our king. Amen.